This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here for this special holiday week episode. It's just me and our Hollywood correspondent, Anthony Bresenkin. Hey, Anthony. Hey, guys. Merry Christmas. Hey, Katie. Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Uh, We are gathering together before the holiday break. Don't worry. We are taking a little time off like uh, most of our colleagues. But we did some really fun interviews to share with the listeners this week. So we wanted to kind of get together and set them up. Uh, So first, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Saoirse Ronan, the star of Little Women. And then we're going to hear Anthony's interview with Roger Deakins, who is the cinematographer for 1917. But cinematographer kind of barely does justice to his massive uh, status within the film industry, I think. He is the cinematographer. He is like, the guy. You know, the elder states. Mount Rushmore. But first, we're going to hear the interview I did with Saoirse Ronan. Um, I love Little Women. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Uh, I was really excited to get to talk to Saoirse about it. Um, Anthony, you were doing some reporting as well about um, men kind of failing in their duty to go see Little Women. Uh, so as a man, you haven't been talking endlessly about Little Women. Uh, why Why should people be seeing it this week and uh, before they maybe before or after they hear this interview with Saoirse? Well, the story I did was uh, it was not, not not about male moviegoers, but rather male voters in some of the guilds and like uh, you know the uh, like the Academy, Golden Globes, that the producers and distributors of Little Women uh, they they noticed that they weren't coming to see the movie that they were getting RSVPs for full award season screeners uh, or screenings. Um, and they were two to one women instead of men, and as we know that there's been some work done on this, but most of the voting bodies of these groups are men. Yes. So they saw that as a warning sign, and then they had a really bad week, uh, awards-wise, with the Golden Globe nominations, basically recognizing Sersha and uh, it's like the, the, the musical score, and I think that was it. And uh, then they got nothing at the Screen Actors Guild nominations, while I think a lot of people would say they really... Uh, although there are other worthy films out there really stood a good chance of getting that best ensemble, let alone some of the individual nominations, especially for Sersha, who carries the film. But it's part of a, I, I think you would uh, agree, like a pretty great ensemble. Oh, it's called it, Little Women. Yes, it's not it Little Woman. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so that was the story and uh, some of the challenges they had there. And a few people spoke up. Uh, Tracy Letts, who plays Mr. Dashwood, the editor-publisher in the movie, who really can't get his mind around what this book is that Joe March is proposing. It, of course, the addition that Greta Gerwig has made to the story is it's framed by the idea that, that Joe is writing the story of Little Women, that, 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 that the Louisa May Alcott story in this, uh, in this version of the tale is uh, actually 
uh, being told by the uh, by the second eldest sister. So she wrote it. She's trying to get it published. And this old man is like, ah, I just don't get it. They need to get married. It needs to be this. It needs to be that. Sort of hammering it into into shape. It breaks too much with The Last Jedi. He doesn't like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I spoke to him, and, and he was just uh, infuriated the idea that, that guys wouldn't be giving this movie a chance. And he, he really spoke about how it's like the hero's journey for Joe. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that it's, uh, it, it's, it is it's an exciting, it's a beautiful story. It's about goodness. I love that about the movie. I love that it's, it's about uh, trying to be decent and trying to help others. And, and, and in addition to following your own dreams. It's and not how solely... hard that is, too, about how, like, because Joe, I think, struggles so much with, like, I just I'm trying to be nice and it sucks sometimes. And she has this great conversation with her mom, played by Laura Dern, who's like, yeah, I'm angry all the time, too. Um, so it's not just about, like, how these are great people, but, like, how these are great people who find it hard, even though they are right, doing exactly. the right thing. Exactly. You know, and um, I mean, and to me, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. Is there such a thing as little women spoilers? I mean, I, don't know. My, I watched it with my husband who uh, did not know that Beth died. So uh, there, he's oh the one, I guess. He's like uh, Joey from Friends when he read Little Women. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Beth's real sick. I don't know what to do. Uh, but like the idea that you would ever forgive a sibling for burning your handwritten novel is... Oof, uh, I know. I don't know, that I, I don't know that I could ever get past that. Well, but she okay. did like almost <laughs> die in order for Joe to forgive her. So, you know, mm, it got know. pretty dramatic. I guess. Uh, but anyway, that's the situation. It's hopefully evolving and changing. And uh, I think what needs to happen now is just word of mouth that people need to be told, look, it's called Little Women. It's a classic story. We certainly women have enjoyed uh, stories of, of young men and boys having adventures over the years. And uh, I think this story of young women coming together and uh, trying to exist and pursue their dreams and ambitions in a time when that was not allowed is... Uh, it's one of the reasons this book has endured, and, and certainly uh, it's manifested in this movie. And I hope people give it a chance. It's really fun and beautiful. Yeah, well, I it's mean... Fun. It's I funny, think... too. There's a lot of humor in it. Oh, and yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's not a drag. Yeah. It's well, not, and hopefully this you know this episode's airing over the holiday week, where I think a lot of people listening to this might have screeners, or a Little Women is playing in theaters. So it, it is. this is kind of the moment where it's like, all right, maybe like something else was getting your attention, or like you thought this was quote-unquote not for you, which, as Tracy Letts would tell you, is ridiculous. Um, but hopefully people are catching up with it. Um, so we have this interview that I did with Saoirse Ronan, where we talked about Little Women and kind of the, the process of making it, and how they all got together for these rehearsals, and what that process of learning was, like how she, she and Florence Pugh knew each other socially beforehand, which I found fast fascinating and she had this really close working relationship with Jacqueline Duran, who was the costume designer, uh, which you can really mm. see the costumes in this movie are phenomenal and just tell a lot of the story. I think Greta Gerwig has talked a lot about how Joe and Laurie, played by Timothy Chalamet, will swap clothing throughout, kind of to indicate the level and depth of their friendship. Um, and that was kind of part of the development of the character from the very beginning. Cool. Um, but I also talked to her about like her growing up as a child actor and like kind of looking back on the work that she did and like whether or not she feels like she's the same actor she was when she was 13, when she was in Atonement. Um, and got into one of my pet subjects. If you listen to the show a lot, I talk about, you know, kids being nominated for Oscars or being taken to the Oscars and how it always looks like they would rather be at home doing something else. Um, and she had an interesting perspective on it, which is like when she went to the Oscars when she was 13, she was in the middle of production on The Lovely Bones. And when she went back to set, like the day after the Oscars, she went and filmed like the scene where her character gets murdered in The Lovely Bones. So for her, the Oscars were fun, even as a 13-year-old, because it was like that or like doing a murder scene. <laughs> Don't you also find that many kids who are acting and performing at that level 
they're very non kid like. Yes. Uh, and and grown up in in a way like that you know you wouldn't expect like. A child to be. Yes. And I'm curious how you found her demeanor. It's been a few years since I spoke to her. And she's now like, is she now in her She's l- like 25, 20s, maybe. Yeah. Mid-20s? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I interviewed her uh, when Hannah came out. If you guys remember that. Oh, that was the, Hannah's amazing. I think it has to be a, at least about eight or nine years ago now. And she was, uh, that was like the assassin. She played like this young girl who was trained as an assassin. It's now like, an, I think like a, a TV series. An Amazon but, series, yeah. Yeah, but she played that part. And I remember interviewing her and it was, I felt like she was just on the edge of like, like being a kid, being a teenager, and really charting her own course as an actress, as opposed to being a kid who gets wonderful opportunities, like but deciding for herself who she wanted to be as a performer. Mm-hmm. What, what what did she tell you about like that journey from child actress to uh, to 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 grown up? Well, what she said was really interesting is that she felt like she was making choices like that from the very beginning, which is not mm-hmm. really what I expected. Like you know, she had auditioned for something else in addition to Atonement, and the other thing might have been bigger, but she wanted to take Atonement because she wanted to make those kinds of movies and kind of knew that about herself, which I think explains a lot about the career that she's had because she's worked yeah. with phenomenal directors. She's really very rarely made a bad movie, and I think she has good parents who have like really helped her through that process, and she really credits like her mom for being with her every step of the way. Um, but I think she had that kind of like sense of knowing what she wanted to do. Like even though she's evolved as an actor and I think has like what she said is like shaken off a lot of the process that she had when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of sense of direction has really stuck with her and I think, you know, explains why her career has been so great. Yeah. At the time I spoke to her, uh, I mean, I guess maybe that's just always been on her mind and uh, as always, even when she was very young. Because when I spoke to her, it was there was a question of whether she was going to be in the Hobbit movies. Oh, I don't remember and, that at uh, all. <laughs> yeah. And she was, uh, I think, considered or the fir- maybe the first choice. It's, this is all, whenever you get a different actor in the part, it's always like, no, no, no this was our first yeah, choice yeah, the course. whole time, you know. Uh, but like, I, I think she was up for the part that Evangeline Lilly eventually played. Uh-huh. And uh, she wasn't sure that she was going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe she chose not to and, and chose other things instead. And yeah. so... Um, I thought she was a very interesting person, like really fun, really cool. She was very creative. I think she was drawing and like, if I'm remembering correctly, like into music and had like cool bracelets and things like that. Like she was very... Uh, almost like incessantly creative. Yeah, well, and she just, she seems like the kind of person, you know, an interview is a somewhat formal setting and she was in a studio in London, so we weren't in the same room, but she seems like someone that if you got to hang out with in a more relaxed situation would be incredibly fun. And I feel that way about Greta Gerwig too. Like they could all just be my friends, obviously. Um, So I can kind of see why they're, um, why they've built such an amazing connection over these two movies and hopefully many, many, many more to come. Um, All right, let's, should we listen to the interview? I'm dying to him. I'm asking you all these questions about it. Let's listen to it. So we had Greta uh, on this podcast a couple weeks ago um, talking to one of my colleagues about the process of making this movie, and she told the story of how you basically uh, pulled her aside and said, I'm going to play Joe Marsh for you. And what Greta said is that you you told her that you'd never done anything like that before. Is that true? Was this a, a first time kind of demanding a role like that? Yeah, I had never done anything like that. I had never kind of actively pursued um, a role myself because, um, you know, so often it's your agents that will go out to different people and and say give her a job or whatever um mm-hmm. but i suppose because i i knew her and um we had had such a special experience making ladybird together and and we were still in the middle of of 
all of the press for that that I just sort of thought I, I didn't even think about it actually I was just sort of like I need to let you know that if you're going to make Little Women I need to be in it and the only part I can play is Joe so <laughs> so that's sort of what happened and then she took about a week to think about it and eventually she she said that I could be in it so yeah well, Greta said it was a very Joe thing to do to kind of yeah. uh, stake your claim like that. But it also feels kind of like a ladybird thing to me to kind of step up and maybe even act more confident than you really are. Which yeah. Did you feel like both of them were kind of speaking through there? I mean, yeah, I suppose you're right. I, I think if anything, it felt like Louisa May Alcott, just her spirit was like, was, was coming through me because as I'm sure Greta told you, when she pitched the idea for Little Women to Sony, the studio that made it, um, she hadn't made Ladybird yet she had only written the draft for this and I, I think was going to go off and make Lady Bird afterwards and and so she was originally just supposed to write Little Women and she told them that she would also be directing it <laughs> they were like yeah. okay um, and yeah and so the I don't know I mean people feel strongly about this book and they feel very connected to this story and um, you know I think what's very exciting about this version is that really all the girls are, are given a chance to to shine but certainly with Joe March she is so beloved and um and therefore Louisa is as well and and I guess there was you do sort of feel an ownership with with the story because everyone's grown up with it you know yeah. Well, um, we also asked Greta if she kind of felt the spirit of Louisa on the set in Concord. And, you know, I know you all visited her grave and I think Greta's response was like, yes, but I don't want to sound like a lunatic. So give you the chance. <laughs> Did you feel like there was like some spiritual connection to Louisa May Alcott when you guys were on the set kind of around her childhood home and where she lived? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly when we were rehearsing and we were in Concord, um, we spent time in the graveyard where Louisa is buried and we spent a lot of time in Orchard House um, and, the, you know, the, the March house in the movie is is basically a replica of the Orchard House where Louisa actually mm-hmm. lived. So, so yeah, there was there was definitely a connection there. I don't know if I felt like her ghost, um, but I... <laughs> but Laura did. <laughs> Laura... You know, I, I think it's something that, that mothers experience more so than maybe um, younger mm. people. I've noticed that a lot of mothers I know, including my own, have this sort of like sixth sense and feel very connected to maybe things you can't see. And I remember when we went to Orchard House for the first time, Laura just like stopped and was like, I can feel her. <laughs> She's here. <laughs> so, yeah. So she must have been kicking about somewhere. But like when you go and you see her headstone, um, it's this very sort of humble little headstone with her name on it. And there's just, it's going to make me cry even thinking about it. There's like, just, there's just hundreds of pens uh, placed mm-hmm. around her grave. And I think even just seeing that, uh, even if if you couldn't quite feel her her spirit, you you know you you could you could when you essentially saw it kind of laid out in front of you how much people love her and how important she yeah. is to people. So when so you talked to Greta, you know, while promoting Lady Bird. If I've got my math right, it's maybe like eight months between that and then when you guys go into production on Little Women, like it's not very long. No. So are you guys in touch in that process? Are you kind of like you know, helping develop the role at all? Or do you kind of like both go your separate ways and you get back together on set and say, okay, the the collaboration starts anew? 
I think we probably took a little bit of a break um, after that. I think we both needed to unwind after all the Ladybird madness. And she was also, yeah. she she just like went to a cabin for like six weeks and started to work on, on the script. Um, so we stayed in touch, you know, every few weeks and she would send me ideas or thoughts or references that she had found. Um, but one of the things that we did start to do sort of early on was Greta would come over to London because so many of the cast are based here and we would work yeah. with Jacqueline Duran who's the costume designer brilliant, 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 brilliant costume designer and she um, works quite a bit in this place called Sam's Theatre in London which is actually where we rehearsed atonement um, and Jacqueline also worked on that as well so it's this very very special place it's been around for a very very long time and um, lots of actors have kind of come in and out of this place and it's just lovely to be there and so Greta would come over and she would do fittings with us and and we did quite a bit together and and I think Jacqueline and I more than anything were staying in touch uh, during that time. Jacqueline would send hmm. me swatches of different fabrics that she had thought of using. We talked about colors and shapes and I had this thought one day that it would be really great if we could find like a military jacket for Joe to wear because Joe says all the time in the book and in, in the movie that she wishes that she was a boy, she wishes she could go to war and she could fight mm-hmm. with her father. And when you look back at Louise's story, there was such a thing about her really feeling like she needed to impress her father and get his approval, which she kind of didn't get for, for well, until she was a success. Uh, so go figure. But, um, mm. but I found that <laughs> interesting for her to put on this sort of armour and that was her way of, of kind of fighting the good fight, you know. So she would put it on any time she would write and that was her way to, to make some sort of contribution, I suppose. Yeah. Have you worked closely with costume designer or with Jacqueline or anyone else to develop a character like that before? Or was that unique to this? Um, Jacqueline is is very much um, a collaborator. She's she's really incredible. I mean, I, I had worked with her when I was younger. So I think this experience mm-hmm. was even more um, intimate for the two of us, more collaborative. And, and she always... Um, focuses on who that character is and really allows you to you know once you've got the framework for the character she really kind of gives you free reign to to make certain decisions so I would say like god should I wear this thing or should I wear that or what do you think she's like well I don't know what do you think and Mm -hmm. you don't get that with with many costume designers another person that I have loved working with is Alex Byrne who did the costume design on Mary Queen of Scots and I started to work with her months and months in advance um, and, you know, I knew nothing about the period but she was doing something quite different and quite cool with um, mm-hmm. with the colours and stuff and again, it was coming from a very uh, emotional place like, like Jacqueline. So you don't get it on every job but, um, you know, I'm certainly not someone who likes someone to just put clothes on me and, and kind of be their mannequin so it's always, it's always lovely to to feel like it's a conversation that we're, that we can all have together, you know? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, you talk about you and some of the other cast being based in London. I assume that you and Emma Watson must have known each other somehow just because you've both been working for so long. Um, but did you know Florence? Did you know Eliza? Like, what's the, you guys are all the, the non-Americans jumping in to play these American icons. So I figure you must have uh, did at least connect on that beforehand. Yeah, um, I, I hadn't met Eliza before. I actually hadn't seen Sharp Objects. I knew she was in Sharp Objects and I watched it while we were making the film, which was a big mistake because she's crazy <laughs> in that show. <laughs> and I had like gone away for the weekend and watched it, watched like the whole season on the plane and I came back on Monday and like I couldn't even look at her because I was like disgusted <laughs> with her. Um, so, I, so I didn't know Eliza from before. Flo and I had met a couple of times through friends and Emma and I had like randomly danced together at like a, a, like a Met Ball party or something like that. <laughs> and um, and and Timmy and I obviously, obviously knew each yeah. other. So, you know, it was, I think what's what's nice about, you know, if, uh, the few of us that, that were a little bit younger is, is that we've, we've kind of been, you know, doing bits and bobs over the last few years and we have some sort of connection to one another, whether we have mutual friends in common or we've worked with the same people or we've met each other ourselves. Like, it, we were all aware of who the other one was and everyone else's mm-hmm. work. So I think that helped. Yeah, and you had this process uh, of kind of rehearsing beforehand. I think you guys were in Concord, or you know, at least all together. And mm-hmm. um, Greta kind of compared it to the Pickwick Club in in the movie and in the book, where you're kind of getting there, like playing together and acting things out for each other. And yeah, um, you know, it sounds like drama school almost. So, I mean, what what was that process like from your end of having of having a rehearsal process that was maybe unique compared to anything else you'd done? It's great. I mean, the reason why it was unique more than anything else is because we had two weeks to rehearse, and you like never yeah. get that on a job anymore unless you've got a lot of uh, money for a film 
um, yeah. or you're doing a play, you just you just don't get that kind of rehearsal. And I, I mean, I remember when I was younger doing Atonement, we had three weeks of rehearsals. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah, but it was amazing. And like, if I was making something, I think I would probably give up a few days of shooting in order to have more rehearsal because mm-hmm. it just means that by the time you start on day one, you're not like kind of still finding your feet or like, I'm still a little bit unsure of this thing. Like everyone's so on the same page. You've had two weeks with not, you know, a massive amount of pressure to to work together, to drill the scenes with one another, but also just to get to know one another and, and be around each other for like, you know, 10 hours at a time. Um, and that has a huge impact on your work. I've always found when when there's been jobs that I've done where you have like a couple of days or four days and, and you know, it's fine and you knuckle down and, and you get to it. But to knock in with that kind of extra nervous energy and to really feel like everyone has just had their time to like... I don't know, settle into it before you've even started is great. So, I mean, the very first scene that we shot, it was actually a pre-shoot day, um, (laughs) but it was a shoot day. Um, But the very first scene that we shot was the scene with myself and Eliza on the beach. It was the two scenes Mm -hmm. that we had on the beach, which are very, you know, they're they're very um, important scenes for the movie. And I think if we hadn't had that time to rehearse, I would have been, you know, shaking like a leaf going into it but because Eliza and I had been together every day and we had drilled scenes together we had done etiquette lessons together like all these different things <laughs> it, we were we were fine we already felt very close so well and I assume Ladybird because Ladybird was such a smaller movie that you wouldn't have had time like that you know it's no, a similarly intimate vibe but I mean that's such an interesting transformation you go back to work together again with Greta and Timmy mm. and like and the circumstances have changed so much well this is it I mean Ladybird has has it has had a massive impact on our lives and um it's this tiny movie that you know we had like four days rehearsals on that or something like that and it was just this little gem that has really touched so many people and and it's such a good movie and and I got such a kick out of coming back to do Little Women and being with Greta again and, and Timothy but but you know for Greta and I to come back together and and see this like massive movie studio behind her and she had you know she had more money to play with um and uh, fantastic heads of department and not that we didn't on Ladybird mm-hmm. but but you know it was a, on a much bigger scale and I was like damn girl you're <laughs> you're killing it <laughs> you know it, it was only two years ago that we we were scrambling to like make sure that we made our day and we we shot for like I don't know 20 something days or something like that and it's it's just amazing and I think it's just a, it's a testament to to Greta's ability and her her gift as a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems so clear how Lady Bird gave her all these resources to kind of step up as a filmmaker, but I'm curious about how it impacted your life because, you know, you, did, you had a somewhat established career at this point, like, you know, you nominated for another Oscar for it, but what what's the tangible impact it's had for you just career-wise or life-wise? Um, I mean, I think career-wise, there was something about me playing like a modern American girl, somebody who, mm-hmm. even though it, it wasn't set in present day, it was the '90s. It was, it was a girl, and it was a, it was a time period that everybody could relate to who was going to see it. Even somebody who was my age, who was only born in the '90s, um, yeah. And I, it, it was, it was like comedy is my absolute favorite genre. It's always been the thing that I've loved the most, and even just to get. To 
to touch on that a little bit and do something that was uh, quirky and witty and had funny moments in it. Like that was something that mm-hmm. I hadn't done since I was about 11 and it's my it's my favorite type of film so it was a it was a scary thing for me to do because it was something that I really 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 didn't want to mess up um but yeah I think it was it was a film that really spoke to my generation slightly younger and a little bit older as well and um and I think just that whole notion of like families that struggle and families that try and put on a brave face to the outside world but they're they're really finding it hard and and, and again it, it's interesting I only realized it when when we started to talk about how little women is so much about money and commerce and yeah. art ladybird focuses a lot on money too and um a person's relationship to it you know and how you kind of can't really let that take over your life. I mean, there's so many, I don't know, there's so many situations in Lady Bird where she really, she she chooses like appearances over what's really important because she's a kid. And it was also yeah. just, it was very nice to play somebody who, who, you know, just had so much about them that was a bit like, oh, oh God, I wouldn't do that. Or, oh God, I wish I could do that. <laughs> you know, she yeah. she really was not perfect. And so personally, that was, that was very... Uh, fun for me to play and and I think people sort of realised when they watched a character like that on screen like oh we've needed that you know yeah well how much I mean you talk about playing a modern American girl and people seeing you differently like how much of that you know starting with Atonement and then in Brooklyn and or Mary Queen of Scots even like has played into kind of the work that you've been able to do or the work that you want to do like do you feel a conscious sense of being like okay I, I well, take apart take apart that's a good part, but like mm. wanting to expand out into what people maybe think that you want to do or that you can do. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there there isn't like a massive strategy when it comes to like where I want to go or whatever. But I definitely have this sort of loose. I don't know what you'd call it, sort of outline, I suppose, for for mm. what I would like to try next. So, like the last couple of things I've done have been period. I I, I think it's it's why is that I don't do a period film next, um, mm-hmm. because because of because of you know the obvious reasons, but also um, I think language wise and what you're able to do physically and what you're able to do with your look and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I want to explore that a little bit more next. So it's it's more about what I feel I need. Um, you know, I've I've done this sort of thing for a bit, so I'll I'll go off and try and do something completely different. But you know, you are you you do also have to kind of be aware that like your work at the end of the day is part of entertainment for other people. They go to the cinema t- and maybe they'll go and see work that you're in. And if you're in everything. I know I do. When I see someone who's in absolutely everything, I'm like, can you just go away for a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm aware of those things because I know that that's how I think. Um, And and I agree with it, you know. Um, I agree with how I think. But I mean, I agree with that thing (laughs) of like, you shouldn't be everywhere all the time. And and so, yeah. So, So there's things like that that sort of 
motivate my decisions. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I say all this, but I could I could read a script tomorrow and again, it's set in the 1800s and it's something that I really, really <laughs> love. So you just you just don't know. But I, I have found it's important to kind of hold on to a little bit of a structure at least. Do you, have you had that sense of structure since you started or when you, when you start when you're so young, do you kind of kind of go in for a whole lot of different reasons and then have to figure that out as you, you know, become an adult and are able to take charge of your own career in that way? No, weirdly, I've always had that. Um, I, hmm. I, it's always been obviously an emotional choice more than anything else. Like if I've decided to do, well, one of the things that I am very happy about is that I've had so many people around me who have like protected me and really supported me but since I was like 12 it's always been my decision to do a certain thing Um, Mm -hmm. so like even when I got atonement I had also gotten this other thing that you know could have potentially been like a more commercial thing and it would have been more money or whatever and it would have been this big kind of Hollywood thing and I knew when I was a kid that that wasn't the kind of film that I wanted to be in Um, I knew I wanted to be in this beautiful British independent thing with these great actors and this great director with a great character. And, you know, because I had had grown up watching good movies and I wanted to be in the good ones um, as much as possible. So, yeah, so I've kind of always had that that sense a bit of like, I I don't want to go down this path. This is the kind of way that I want to go for a bit. And, you know, yeah, yeah. When you look at the performances that you gave at that point, or even, you know, five years ago or six years ago, like, do you recognize the same performer? Do you feel like you've Hmm. really changed the way that you approach acting since you first started? That's a good question. Um, I think at my core, I'm still the same. Like when I was doing Brooklyn, because it was the first time in like a good few years where I was leading something and, and it was an Irish film and I knew that like, if it was done right, it would be such a proud moment for us all. So I was... Mm-hmm. naturally terrified um, and I I remember I would call my mom up and I was so lucky I had like John Crowley and I, I had all these brilliant people with me but I'd call my mom up and I was like I, I feel like I've I can't get back to that thing that I had when I was a kid where you just sort of float onto set and it was just you just let it kind of all happen to you and you wouldn't overthink mm-hmm. it and you know and I did go through that thing of like feeling like oh god have I have I lost that and I remember once I had kind of broken through that fear a little bit and and you know continued to kind of do really cool projects and stuff that went away and I was only speaking to someone about this a while ago like after doing Brooklyn and Ladybird, two things that I was very very scared of doing and then doing like a, a play on Broadway and and then doing Mary Queen of Scots, which was a project that I had been attached to for five years and really felt like a, a collaborator on it. I was like, okay, I'm kind of like I'm settling a little bit now. And I and mm. I was a little bit I felt just in myself that I was a little bit looser than than I had ever been before growing up. But I was finding the the kind of fun in it again. And then by the time it came around to Little Women, I was like, I just want to have fun with it. Just let me at it. So and you know, there'll be takes that I that I'll do that won't be perfect and and that's kind of all right. Because I I speak to actors 
who also started when they were young. And there's definitely this thing that we all have where we're sort of like, still is good. <laughs> it will be still <laughs> and that'll be good. And, and you know, you, you, need, you need your rules when you're starting out and you really need your structure to learn your craft and to get better at it and, and to sort of um, practice. And then I think when you've been doing that for long enough and, and you've been trying to, you know, hit those beats, I suppose, as much as you can, whatever's been set out for you, you kind of just start to like ease up on it just a tiny, tiny bit and kind of go, kind of kind of like when you cook a dish and you're not following the recipe exactly, but you're kind of going, I'm going to put a few few chilli flakes in there or, you know, throw a little bit of garlic in, even though it's not in the recipe, because I think, you know, it could taste nice. Who knows? Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And so I suppose it's just something that comes with with experience. And, and, and I can see actors like Meryl and Laura, and they've been doing it for, you know, their whole lives or at least their whole adult lives. And you can see they just... Like they're good and they and they know they're they're good, which is so brilliant to see. And they're just like having fun doing it, you know. So you can kind of feel that sinking in a little bit more, I think, as you get older. Yeah, well, it's it's funny seeing you and Florence Pugh, you know, in this movie together because you're about the same age, but she's had this really like breakout series of films recently and mm. hasn't been acting on film as long as you have. And you both are experienced and incredibly talented, but that I feel like that level of experience might be really interesting to just watch kind of play out that yeah. you have been seeing yourself on film since you were a teenager. She hasn't been, but here you are in the same place kind of bringing performances to the same film. It's, it's great to watch at least. Yeah, it is. Like, you know, I, I suppose that's the great thing about, about any kind of art form is that you're all coming to it from from different backgrounds and you've all got different experiences you know I mean because Flo was doing performing arts when she was in school that wasn't something that I was doing I was on set and and Mm -hmm. Eliza was in school and and Timmy was in LaGuardia and like um, and then there's other people that you meet like I, I think the actor Sam Riley is one of these people that was literally just sort of like found in a school or like on the street or something. Um, <laughs> and he was he was put in control, the film about Joy Division. So everyone's coming at it from a slightly different angle and it makes it very exciting. And I mean, there's things that, because I love working with kids on set, there's things I learn from kids, you know, that are just as profound as what I would learn from actors who have been doing it for a very long time because what we're as older actors what we're all trying to hold on to is the purity that you have when you're a child and that Mm -hmm. that feeling that you can totally let go to your imagination and you can be completely uninhibited when you're when you're creating something and, and you're not conscious of it you're just literally playing and that's something that we're all desperately trying to hold on to. And I know that like when I was doing Brooklyn, I was like, I have to hold on to that thing because I know that that's, that's what the thing is, you know. Um, so it's it's wonderful to be, to have grown up with people who are in their 50s, who are in their 20s, who are five years old, who are a baby or like 90 or whatever. And you're all bringing your own thing to it. It's very exciting. Do you feel particularly like uh, like you need to look out for kids who you're in movies with? You know, for people who looked out for you when you were younger, you have to pay it forward and uh, and help them out. Yeah, I do, and um, that's something that I I do feel very very strongly about because you know I I was very lucky that I was I was so taken care of definitely by my parents and my mom who came with me everywhere. She was the the most amazing chaperone. Um, I could have asked for and everybody always loved her on set but 
I also worked with wonderful actors like Juno Temple and James McAvoy, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Guy Pearce, Stanley Tucci, Rachel Weisz, like Susan Sarandon, all these amazing people when I was young and I'll never forget how kind they were to me and how much time they gave me. Um, and I know how important that was for me as somebody who was a child in in, in an adult's environment, really. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm very, very protective over over kids on set and just young people in general because I think the the gorgeous thing about kids is that they're so willing to do anything and they'll never kind of mm. say no and in the wrong hands that's obviously that is taken advantage of so I'm kind of always yeah. on the lookout for it whenever I'm <laughs> whenever I'm on set because that's what my mum did with me I had her and, and I know that not everybody has has a Monica with them so <laughs> yeah well so every time I watch the Oscars or award shows and I see kids who are you know nominated or attending with a movie I always wonder if it's any fun to be in these really adult spaces yeah. when you're that young and I'm curious for you when you were 13 and at the Oscars was it fun or did you like wish that you were at school with whatever your friends were up to that day I didn't wish I was at school. I mean, I I um I was doing the Lovely Bones at the time, so I was in New Zealand. So, so school was still work. <laughs> school, yeah, exactly. I was with the tutor and Stanley Tucci. Um, uh, like the scene that I was going back to do after the Oscars, straight after the Oscars, was the scene where Susie Salmon, my character, is uh is killed <laughs> in oh, yeah. underground. So it it was it was quite intense, but it was so much fun there, and that and that was kind of all I. I wanted to do like I think back then for me the Oscars was um a thing that I would watch on the telly like it, you know what I mean yeah. it was I, I would tune in every single year I would watch it on the tv I was so excited to to see everyone get up and make their speeches I remember when I was younger and Reese Witherspoon won and I was so excited for her that she had won for Walk <laughs> the Lion and um and so that's sort of what it was back then I think now it's 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 obviously the the last award show of of the year, so everyone is like, "Yay!" and uh, everyone's <laughs> sort of letting loose a little bit more, and um, yeah, and it's it, it's it's lovely, and it's the academy, and it's it's a group of of people who who really respect film, and um, film is something that is very very important to them. And I think if you're if when when you're older and you understand that you're being recognised by people that you've either worked with in film or just people that you really look up to in film that is wonderful um you know and it like a few years ago when we were there and Fran McDormand won like that to me that was that is what the Oscars should be that is what any award show should be where yes somebody will win but it's also an opportunity to go like we are a community of filmmakers um yeah. and we're all here to highlight our work and to celebrate our work um and that's what in particular that year that's what that felt like and I thought it was so incredible that she she did that and she this was her moment and if you want to get up there and just be like oh my god thank you so much but the fact that she was able to share it with us and everyone else in the room I think was so amazing so well, was that the year, if I remember correctly, that, you know, there was a picture of you and Margot Robbie and Sally Hawkins and Meryl, I think, all together, like, in a group hug or, like, some kind of group photo, like, this bonding moment mm. that was captured that was really uh, striking for all the rest of us to see? Yeah, I mean, that was that was at the Oscars, and we knew that she was planning something, but we didn't know exactly what it was going to be, and it was just kind of exhilarating to... to 
to have that moment to share with these actresses that you had gone to every party with, every award show with, every Q&A with, you'd done every panel with them. Margot and I had done Mary Queen of Scots together. Like, it was it was lovely. It was so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Sorsha. And it was, I'm really glad we got to talk about that group hug photo because I have treasured it ever since then. <laughs> yeah, <so. it's> good. <laughs> um, and thank you. And congratulations on Little Women. I love it. And i was been really excited to get to talk to all of you guys about oh, it. Great. So thank you. Thank you. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, Anthony, now we're going to uh, hear your interview with Roger Deakins. Um, as we were saying before, he is a cinematographer who has really achieved this legend status. He was like famously nominated for so many Oscars for so long before he won. He won for Blade Runner 2049 a couple years ago. Uh, now he's working on 1917, which to say something is technically impressive for Roger Deakins is a pretty high bar since he's done yeah. incredible things. But this really is like a new level for him, right? Yeah, and I think it runs the risk of coming off as a gimmick, this notion that it's a single-take film. It's not really. It's obviously many takes, but woven together to look like an unbroken perspective following these two soldiers as they uh, get their orders to send a message to uh, another group of thousands of soldiers who are about to go into a battle that's a trap. So this is obviously... Spoiler alert from the title, the year 1917, where you can't just tweet or send a text. So you've got to send two guys. There are no phone lines. There's no way to communicate with these people who are about to die if they follow through with their marching orders at dawn. So uh, these two boys essentially have to cross a brutal battlefield. They have to go through a town. They have to, you know, over the hills and through the woods to get to this um uh, this commander who can halt mm -hmm. the assault. And the idea that it's a single take, that's been tried a few times in the past. It's hard, for one, so it doesn't get attempted a lot. Alfred Hitchcock tried it with rope, and that was all sort of a self-contained story within basically a single room with some very big columns so that when the camera <laughs> swept by... Hmm, you know, you could cut. Also with uh, very you know. different technology than what um, these guys had access yes. to. Yes. The part of the, the Hitchcock's problem with that movie is you couldn't move the cameras fast enough to create different compositions. Mm -hmm. So you were basically just rolling around following things, but you couldn't um, you couldn't push in and pull out and go up and, and go through the way you can now, partly because it's easier to mask the cuts. Um, but also, even on this film... Uh, Deacons uh, helped develop a, a new type of camera that he'll go into detail about. I, I couldn't speak to the specifications of it, but a, a smaller, more nimble camera that still creates a, a vast cinematic canvas, but you can just fit it into smaller places and move it a little easier. It's that movement that gives the film its quote-unquote cuts, not, not where the seams are between when the actors stop and start a new thing, but, but actually creating portraits within the film uh two shots one shots sky shots uh you know panoramas that you get on the screen and you feel your eye moving 
but you don't um you can't do that if you if you have a, a camera that weighs the, you know the size of a toyota so, or the weight <laughs> we, just of a toyota. Don't, we just don't think about mm-hmm. cameras and their like physical limitations that much i mean that's been part of mm-hmm. hollywood from the very beginning like in silent films because the camera the, you know they start having sound and the cameras are too loud like there's sings and singing in the rain all about that um and you know now we have our iphone cameras and like they can do just about anything but it's for making a just movie about. it really is still a consideration yeah, you've got to have a camera person, you know, camera operator moving it at, at some points, like going through mud, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they lay down like, you know, stones or boards or something so they don't trip, but you've got to make sure you're moving, you're keeping the focus. Then, you know, that person seamlessly attaches to a crane and then that, or the camera attaches to a crane and then sweeps over uh, a body of water, a little lake full of dead bodies, like, <laughs> to, to, you know, to track these two guys and, and like, it's it's actually choreography, you know, the camera movements are choreography that are capturing acting and the stuff he talked about there, like that's what we understand. But then he also gets into very specific things. Like I think the, the aspect of lighting that a cinematographer does is one thing that we often overlook. We think so much about the camera operation and the framing and the portraiture, but the lighting is a major part of that. And one of the most interesting things he talked to me about was how they created lighting in a night scene that uh, involves flares flying overhead, that involves our heroes being stalked and uh, by enemy soldiers in a in a burned out, bombed out town, mm-hmm. uh, where the church that's at the center of it is a raging inferno, and the you know the magic trick here is the church is the one thing that doesn't exist. The fire isn't there Mm. that's an effect that's added um the church actually is what what sam mendes described to me at a q a i did with these guys uh right the day before we did this interview Uh, he described it as the starship from the end of close encounters of the third kind if you remember that thing that just like it was just looked like uh looked like a giant bowl with like uh that had been wrapped in like uh uh, string after string of Christmas lights. <laughs> so this <laughs> I thing they created from, was... I remember that from behind the scenes of Skyfall, too. Like, at the very end of Skyfall, the, um, you know, the, the mansion catches on fire, and there's mm-hmm. these behind-the-scenes shots of, like, Daniel Craig standing in front of just, like, stacks of these lights that look like they're from a, you know, football stadium. Um, to, and that is going to be CGI'd in as the fire, but they have mm-hmm. to create the light, actually. So even though there's computer effects being used for it, the light has to exist in the real world to make it look right. Exactly. So... Um, so that's what they did, and they had to light this whole town. They had to build a town. They built a model of the town and then figured out where the camera needed to move in order for the light to hit the actors just the right way as they as they ran through. So then they, that's how they determined which parts of the town were, would be bombed out, is which way the light would from the burning, t- from the burning church would cast on them. And, and so it's all really fascinating. Um, I can't recommend this movie enough. Uh, we were just talking about Little Women. I can't recommend that movie enough, too. Both of these are 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 wonderful films about people with a lot of heart and daring, and uh, I I think uh, after you see 1917, you're really gonna want to know like how they did that. Yeah. But as you're watching it, those questions really fall away. Occasionally, occasionally I'll be like, oh man, how do they? How do they get from there to there? I yeah. can't tell how they did that. But. Well, they're not really trying to mask the cuts. Like, you know, it's not, it's supposed to look like one take, but it's not like, you know, you see the camera move behind a tree trunk and you're like, okay, that's where the cut was. Like, it's not trying to fool you in a way that I think would make it feel more gimmicky. It, it feels more like um, inherent to the action and the story. 
I don't know about that. I think there are a lot of cuts that you aren't. But, no, no, that's probably can. true. But it's not. Yeah. It, it's what I can. I notice when it like takes a breath to kind of shift into a new part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it didn't feel like it was trying to be like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it all is one take. Like they've been kind of frank about no. the work that goes into it. And, and it, I didn't mind it as much. Like I didn't feel like I was trying to be tricked. I felt like I was being like immersed into the world the way that I think they wanted me to. A lot of the cuts happen with doorways. Like they'll go through an archway or something. Uh-huh. And, that, and that's like actually when they pass through, that's the cut. Yeah. But, you, but it never – there's never a moment where the whole screen gets wiped. Uh, probably a few of those a little bit like with fences and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, if, you know, effects shots when a character dives off of a off of a cliff into a river. <laughs> You're um, saying that doesn't happen? I'm going to say like that's an opportunity for a cut, yeah. you know, the yeah. big splash. So. Um, anyway. Yeah, I, I too could not recommend 1917 enough. The 1917 and Little Women are incredibly different movies, which is part of why it's fun to have them on the same episode. Um, but, you know, they're also, I think, the visions of directors like Sam Mendes and Greta Gerwig both had really specific takes on these stories from the past and, and make them feel really fresh and vital um, in a way that maybe even people who don't necessarily want to see period pieces will be engaged by. Well, and in thematically, in the broadest possible strokes, uh, it's both of these movies are about um, what we owe ourselves and what we owe other people. Like, what, mm. at what point do you put aside your safety or your dreams for uh, for others? And sometimes you do do that because you love them and you care about them and you want to be kind and helpful. And sometimes you have to stand up and say, "No, I I deserve this. Yeah. I'm, you know, this is, I have to look look out for myself." And um, and each movie is about that tug of war in the human heart. That's a great way to put it. Um, let's listen to your conversation with Roger Deakins. So, Roger, I'm wondering where you think is a good place to begin talking about your work on 1917. I know it was intense and very collaborative with director Sam Mendes and, you know, the production designer, Dennis Gassner, and and so many members of the crew. As this project came together, what was the first conversation or the earliest conversations you remember having with Sam about what he was embarking on here? Um, well, I talked to Sam very, very early on, actually, before most people came on board, really, I think. Um, we just had sort of a general conversation about the concept and then we started doing sort of storyboards. We worked with a storyboard artist and just started sketching out ideas of uh, how we felt the camera could uh, move and just ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other people came on board and it just became a more, a bigger and bigger sort of circle of, uh, as you say, collaborative sort of process. Was there anything you knew or had learned from other projects that attempted something similar to this? I know, you know, going back decades, Alfred Hitchcock tried to make a film uh, with the appearance of a single take with rope. I think there was a horror film called Silent House that that tried to uh, uh, accomplish the same thing. And there have been several films that have had long tracking sequences that, that, that go through, you know, several minutes and follow characters through very complicated backdrops and scenery what was it what what did you find useful from the past as you uh you know try to chart a new course with this film no i mean i you know there's a lot of films i've seen that come to mind i mean there's a a great long tracking shot that's actually a piece of film history and red badge of courage you know Mm -hmm. that john houston did that was for its time a really exceptional shot but uh, it's only 
thought of as an exceptional shot when you analyze the movie. It's not something that, you know, jumps out at you at the moment you're watching the movie, mm -hmm. which is the trick, really. And we didn't, we didn't really, we didn't look at any other film. Mm -hmm. Sam and I didn't look at any other films just in terms of referencing how we were going to approach it. I mean, it was just very much its own piece, you know? I mean, it's a very specific story and uh, to, to tell. And I think what influenced me more than anything is the way Sam and I worked together on Jive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't one take or anything, but it was the same intensity. And we wanted the same kind of idea of being with a character, seeing the world from that character's point of view, you know, in this mm -hmm. case, two characters, but in Jarhead, the, 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 the one major character, mm -hmm. you know, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. You know, that, that to me was um, the thing that, um, you know, was a basis, I think, for the way we worked on this, really. Sam said he and his co-writer, Christy, would, would um, come up with ideas and then, you know, present them to you and leave them in, in a sense for you to solve the problem. Uh, at least that's sort of how he characterized it when we did our Q&A uh, the first weekend they began showing the film. What were some of the obvious things that jumped out to you just from reading their words on the page uh, about what was going to be especially challenging for you? It's not really like that because every scene's challenging whether it's you know the scene in the basement and the mm -hmm. destroyed town with the girl and the baby i mean it's challenging for everything's challenging for different reasons mm. i mean the way it worked is that you know we did a lot of rehearsals and and the yes the, the, the basis was the script but how do you visualize the script and that was done um through rehearsing with the actors and mm -hmm. figuring out the kind of look of the sets, the length of the trenches, you know. So it wasn't a case of them sort of <laughs> handing over to me this set of problems. It wasn't like that. I mean, I guess he was joking a little bit crucial. when he said that. No, yeah. yeah, but it's crucial to realize that the what he was saying at that point was what was important was to figure out what we wanted to show the audience and how we wanted to show the audience that this experience these two soldiers were having. Mm -hmm. We didn't think of it as a technical, from a technical perspective. That's what he was saying. Mm. That was, that's what's really important to understand. You're not thinking, oh, how do we get the camera to cross the canal? That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, where do we want the camera to be? What is the shot? That's what you always do when you approach a film, whether you see rehearsals or not. I mean, that's what you're trying to, you know, you take the script and interpret it visually. You don't think about the difficulty of doing any particular shot because you know once you know what you want to do with the camera once you know how you're, you're describing it with images then then you can work out how you do mm -hmm. it that's something that's a technical challenge and you know there's a lot of very experienced people that i work with and um i had a lot of time to prep and look at different equipment and test different equipment and figure out you know, which piece of equipment fitted each particular part of the story. Mm -hmm. And and then it was all, it's all so crucial where, how we broke up the story into its separate elements. I mean, the certain scenes you wanted to do in one because of the performance, because of what was happening. But there's other scenes, other sections, which is a journey where 
you know, technically it's possible to do some part of it with one piece of equipment, but then you need to change to another piece of equipment to, to get the optimum kind of uh, shot. Mm -hmm. So all these things had to be worked out. But I say it was a sort of long process, but it starts with, you know, conceptualization of the look or the feel of the film and then rehearsing to get more detailed kind of idea of what you wanted to do with the camera, what's what's the important moments to see, which is not different than you do on any film. Let me put it a different way then. Was there something in the script by Sam and, and Christy Wilson Cairns that, that just excited you, that you thought, I can't wait to apply some creativity to this, I can't wait to shoot this and create this image? Well, I'm a bit of a history buff. I mean, um, you know, the First World War is quite a significant thing in, in uh, British history. It certainly is to mm -hmm. me. I mean, obviously, I was born after the Second World War. My father was in the Second World War and some incredible experiences he had in the Second World War. And, um, you know, I'm from Devon in southern England. And you go in any small village or town in, in Devon, and there'll be a memorial cross in a village square. And there'll be all these names of the people that died, especially in the First World War, because it was that kind of war. And sometimes you'll see the same surname six or seven times in the same little village. Six or seven people from the same family were killed in that war on this one little village. And that's, I say, that's everywhere in the country. Mm. And, you know, you, you brought up seeing that. And so, it actually was something that I've always been fascinated in. Why did that happen and stuff? So, I mean, when Sam told me he was, you know, thinking of doing this project and sent me the script, then, yeah, I mean, of course I was excited. Yeah. We talk so much about the cameras and the equipment and, and how you work with your tools. How many takes would you estimate you did on, on average uh, for any given sequence? Um, it, it varied between probably 12 and 30 or really? maybe even, uh, yeah, you know, and the takes, the takes that are in the movie also varied from, you know, being number well, one of the last take in the film is the first take we did of that particular part mm -hmm. of the sequence. Um, and sometimes it was much later. Was it, was it always a matter of, did you know when you had it right? were all of those takes due to, well, we didn't quite nail it that time. Let's try it again. Uh, there was a mistake oh, or something. No, were you looking it, for variation? It, it, um, Sam was looking, uh, no, Sam was looking for the perfect take. I don't, there wasn't a matter of variation. It was a matter of about finding the right chemistry, the right moments with the actors, this, that sort of, the other kind of, you know, the unspecific things that happen when you shoot. I mean, that's, sort of sort of wonderful about shooting just things happen you know it doesn't matter how much you've prepped it and how much you know what the shot is and the actors know exactly what the line is and they rehearsed it but there's things that happen and you just go wow that was really good that was it and and quite often at the end of a take we'd you know come out of our little tents or vans where we're operating from and Sam's watching his monitor and people come out and go Wow, that was it, <laughs> you know. And then, but then we might go on and do some more takes because we might we might say, well, okay, we've got one that's really good. Let's see where mm -hmm. it can go, you know. 
some very much likes to say, oh, I've got to take, maybe take five was good. Let's try and see if we get another one, see what, see what comes, you know, because it's not something that's, you know, it's, it's a very sort of fluid thing. And it's, uh, that's what I meant about I variation. Yeah. It's, those it's, moments, you know, those moments. Yes. It's, it's, yes, it's variation, but it's something more than that. So it's just those unexpected kind of, bits of chemistry and lucky you know lucky moments that happen you know you mentioned the the night shoot and one of the most dazzling sequences in the film takes place in a in a destroyed town and george mckay's character schofield is running as flares are going off there's fire a church is burning in the center of town and um there's almost this dance of shadow the way the the way the the, the sparks illuminate the uh, yeah, the, the broken bridge, walls. Yeah. They kind of swivel and swirl around him. Uh, I, I wondered if you could talk about the how you composed that sequence and and what effect you were hoping to create in the mind of the viewer. Well, I think the but Sam and I talked about this. It's a, you know Schofield has been knocked out, and it's like we wanted a feeling of a kind of nightmare. I suppose we mm-hmm. wanted it to be quite surreal because it's like. You don't know where you are, and is it is it is it reality or not? You know, is it Schofield's dream, his nightmare? You know, you you, you just want that kind of surreal, kind of suspenseful, kind of feel to it. So we talked about this, and Sam in the script, it was like he wanted these flares, as though the Germans in the town were firing off flares because they knew somebody was around. And then it's a discussion, well, okay, so the flares come up and light it, but what else is there and what else do we want to see? And then we really set on the idea that the flare would be the only light mm-hmm. for the certain part of the journey and there would be periods of darkness. I was, I was quite keen that it would go into absolute blackness and then you would just hear the sound of Schofield's breathing and his footsteps in the darkness. So that's... You know, that's what we went for. And then and then it's a sort of just a sort of technical challenge as how you make that work. You know, obviously we mapped out the length of the run before the set was, you know, the set was constructed. And then we, we uh, I think as Sam was saying, we had a model. Dennis Gassner and the art department created this quite large model that then, you know, we could put all the broken walls in. We could show where the camera was going to be we could put in little leds to mimic the flares and how far they where the cranes that was holding the flares would be on the site and then just the timing and 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 then we could figure out also where we wanted shadows Mm -hmm. so what where did we want a high structure where did we want the light to create this shadow how was that going to work you know where where is the graveyard where is the fence of the graveyard so you get the shadow of the fence going across you know all these things were were quite meticulously worked out with the art department and um, and then in the town you have this big burning church so that had to be aligned to where Schofield comes into the colonnade um, and originally that wasn't a colonnade so it's like okay well we've got this light so if we have a colonnade then you're going to have the shadows and darkness of, of what you get from a colonnade you know so all those things all these angles had to be worked out and where we had a solid structure where we had a gap you know so that the light would kind of seep through and and Schofield would be 
lit at the right moments or silhouetted at another moment, you know? I thought this was one of the more fascinating things that Sam and you discussed at our Q&A was the idea that Dennis Gastner builds the town. He builds it in its entirety as it would have been standing. And then you figured out where Schofield would run and he knocked out houses and structures and walls so that the burning oh, he, church he did that as a model yeah yeah he did he didn't build the whole town for real he designed it as a in a as a in a, in a 3d model that's what i meant yeah as a real town yeah modeled then, it that way and yeah and then then he built a physical model mm-hmm. that we could work with and then we could say well this wall can be higher and this wall needs to be more destroyed mm-hmm. you know and then we molded the the physical model because we had a you know we had a light that mimicked what the church was yeah. and so we had a rough idea but even even after the the whole entire set was built for real on the back lot we did then have to also adapt the structure because however you do it on the model it's not exactly right. the same as the real thing so with them we we knocked down some walls for real and then built other walls <laughs> To mold the real light that we had on the actual set on the you know i th- just thought yeah. that was fascinating that you had to conceive at least the real town yeah. uh, and, and then of course you build the set is the ruins but you have to f- build it in order to tear it down yeah. as a model and then build build the actual set out of the the remains of that and the the burning church uh is a that's a bit of a, a movie magic trick. You said the flames are added digitally, and, and Sam said the lighting rig that you created to mimic the flames of this burning holy place looked like the starship from Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind with all of its many lights. Can you describe what you constructed uh, there? I think it was a bit bigger than that. Oh, really? <laughs> no, it was um, it was sixty feet by thirty feet on its base, and it was. 50 foot high it was five tiers of light and it was like a big oval shape i said 60 by 30 big oval shape 50 feet high i had to do it so the light could be stronger in certain places because for instance when he goes to the schoolhouse where he fights with the young german soldier and kills the young german soldier it's still lit by that even though you're on a kind of interior it's still lit by that same element. So again, the schoolhouse, the windows had to be designed to allow in the light to light the scene. And uh, it also had to be designed at an angle. So the fight's actually in shadow and they're silhouetted against the streaks of light coming in from the windows beyond them, if you like, you know, and it had to be designed that when he runs out that door, having killed the German, when he runs out the door, he comes out the door and then, then you're looking square at the church again as he comes out the door and then he runs down the street at 90 degrees and he's side lit again. So kind of all those things had to be worked out and so there had to be more intense parts of this one big lighting structure to light those, mm. you know, the, the most important pieces of this, the sequence. The last thing I want to ask you about is a, is a scene that's not the end, but it's near the end when we approach a group of resting soldiers and someone is singing a song, singing a spiritual wayfaring stranger. And you talked about the nightmarish aspect of the night sequence. And we went also through a a kind of hellish experience where he plunges into a river and is swept along, which I assume came with uh, quite a few challenges 
of its own there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but right yeah. after that, there's this moment of peace. And I wondered if you could talk about creating that yeah. sense of peace. There's a slowness. There's so much pace, so much quick pace to this movie. But at this point, he approaches uh, with a kind of stillness and, yeah. and trepidation. Yeah. Well, that, that scene's based on a true contemporary account of um, a group of soldiers. Actually, it was a piano, and a group of soldiers were around somebody playing the piano, and they were singing, and they were off the, behind the front line ready to go to attack. Uh, so it's like a true, kind of true story, and then Sam decided to make it this one particular traditional folk song. Um, and we wanted that, again, that's a kind of surreal moment, and you wanted to discover it, but slowly so at first he hears the singing when he's down by the river and we deliberately didn't we wanted to stay behind him but not actually know what was happening we didn't want to see the singer until he slouches down against the tree and at that point then we come off his back and go towards the singer and then it was important to see all the young guys faces as they're you know waiting to go to their death maybe so that's why we created that kind of continuous curving shot around the faces and the singer and then coming back through the faces and finding Schofield again where he's slouched down by the tree. You know, so it's, it's kind of like any film, you, you're looking for the important beats of a scene. What do I need to show the audience? What's important here? What, yeah, you know, what, what are the crucial things that I have to capture? And, but in this case, obviously, you've got to join them all together in some sort of fluid shot. So just something that came to mind and just, yeah, you know, that's, that's, it just felt right. You know what I mean? It's just an instinctive kind of reaction to, yeah, something you have in your mind, I guess. Yeah, obviously, you've worked with, uh, with Sam Mendes going back many years. Uh, you've worked with uh, the production designer, Dennis Gassner, many, many times going back to the Coen Brothers films. Yeah. Uh, I know you've worked yeah. with your crew, uh, you know, for, for decades. Now. Yeah, my gaffer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my gaffer on this film. I worked with John Higgins. I worked with him on 1984. Oh, wow. In 1984, <laughs> so that's how long we go. Wow. Uh, my focus puller I've been working with for 30 years as well, Andy Harris. So. Could you have yeah. accomplished this movie if you didn't have those deep ties and that comfortableness in working so closely with a filmmaker and people in other departments and your own crew over the course of decades? That's hard to say. I, 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 don't, I don't think so, but I, know, I don't know. There's a lot of very you know, talented crew people there, but um, I mean, it, it definitely makes such a difference when you've had, have this relationship with people and there's a certain trust that builds up and it, yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial. I mean, I wouldn't say that that's the sole crew in the world that could have done this film. Um, I'm certainly not the sole cameraman in the world could have done this film, but there's certainly the combination of all of us together, I think. Well, it is yeah, what it is, guess, you know what I mean? I guess, I guess I assume <laughs> there would be some... Uh... You know each other's skills, you know each other's perhaps weaknesses, yeah, but, how to know, fill in. and Yeah, but, uh, you know, I mean, to go into some of the operators, I mean, Peter Cavacuti was who, shooting Steadicam, which is a conventional kind of rig these days. I mean, he did some crucial Steadicam shots. I've worked with him since I was doing 
Eric Clapton videos back in the early, late 70s, <laughs> early 80s, I guess. Um, you know, so he's somebody I've known for years, but Charlie Resick, who was doing, operating this Trinity rig, which is like a steady cam, but it's like a little jib arm. I met him for the first time as we were prepping this film and, and working with different pieces of equipment to figure out how we wanted to approach it. You know, I met him for the first time and we just hit it off and I thought, you're perfect. He'd never worked on a feature film before. And I said, will you come and work on this film? And he was like, he, I think he nearly collapsed. He was so he was so pleased. I mean, yeah, and he did brilliant work. So, you know, those the people are, are there. It's just but you bring people with, I don't know, with your own sensibility, I suppose. Somehow you connect with people, don't you? And you just you just it brings a, a kind of way of working together uh, yeah. you know something that you can't really be specific about but it's um it, it does make a difference just working with people that um are just friends even if you've only just met them mm -hmm. a few weeks previously you can say they're friends you know exactly well it sounds like also a mix of of deep experience and also innovation and, and, yes. and new talents and new technology and skills. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of new technology. I mean, again, there was a, the camera was the first time this camera was used. We were actually working with prototypes of this actual camera. You know, in some of the rigs, the uh, main stabilizing head that we had called a Stabileye is very, very new piece of equipment, you know. So it's, it, was a, it was a wonderful combination about with, you know, guys with a lot of experience and guys with new pieces of equipment and, you know, bring it all together. It's fun. That's the most important part. Roger Deakins, thanks ah. for talking to us about 1917. Hey, it's my pleasure. Okay, Anthony, uh, now we've shared our interviews. We're going to go off and rejoin our families for our holiday breaks. Um, you'll be back on the next episode because we're going to have our Golden Globes predictions airing um, right after the new year. So uh, mm. never fear. Anthony will be back on Little Gold Men before you know it. Uh, <laughs> thank you for letting us wrangle you. Happy to be here. It's a lot of fun <laughs> to be on the show. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll be back next week uh, and then back in full gear uh, after the holiday break. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Anthony. I'm at Bresnikan. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, AWOK -okay and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 